Hey there, my name is Roy, and I am the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. And we're glad today that you're joining us. We're a two-part series that we're beginning today on the subject of marriage. We've called for better or for worse. Well, today we're beginning this two-part series, and we know that not everyone listening here is married. Um, So we decided we're not going to do a 12-part marriage series. That would just be too much. But we didn't want to ignore the topic either. And so we decided it was very critical that we speak, especially when some of our marriages could use uh, some tools. Um, Some of them are struggling, or if your marriage is going strong, you can can always continue to invest in your marriage. That'll never go wrong. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, you know, you're at home, you can put up your hand when you want to, but how many people have been married for more than one day? Okay, good. That's our baseline. Uh, More than five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40, 50, 60. Uh, Now, when you've been around someone for a long time, there's little that you don't know about that person. In fact, there's a thought that married couples begin to look alike when they've been together for so long. Some recent research, though, has debunked that theory. What they discovered is that what we do is we spend a lot of time in front of the mirror and we tend to pick somebody who has similar genes or similar features to us. They did this experiment where they showed a picture picture of uh, someone's spouse's face, but what they'd done is they had digitally altered it to add different features into their spouse's face. you know, might have different lips or eyebrows or whatever. And, and they, they, they mixed it with different people's features, but then they did one picture that was digitally altered with their features in their spouse's face. And what they found consistently over and over again is the subject thought the picture with their own features in their spouse's face was the most attractive. And not only do married couples begin to... Um, look the same or act the same, but they, they, they begin to think and act uh, very similar in their expressions. Um, you might develop the similar expressions to your spouse, or you might use some of the same language or vocabulary that they do. You might even find that sometimes you say the same thing at the exact same time. Uh, you sort of, sort of sync together after a while. Well, my in-laws are great people from the province of Newfoundland and have been married for, I believe, 50 years this year. They're living proof of this synchronization. One night we were playing a game, that a talking Pictionary, where basically you have a card and you read your card um, to your partner. And you describe what's on there, but you can't say the word that's on there. And you've got a time limit. You've got to get through as many words as you can. And then you switch partners. Well, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law are partners in... My father-in-law picks up the card and he says to my mother-in-law, okay, so this is an orange fruit. Now, I'm ready to call them for cheating because an orange, first of all, you can't say the word. And what other fruit could an orange fruit be but really an orange? And that's when my mother-in-law just shouts out, banana. And I'm I'm almost ready to laugh at this point because that just kind of seems like not even close until my father-in-law yells, yes, that's right. And at this point, I just kind of threw up my hands. I'm like, we're not even playing a fair game. 
at this point. They, they, they have a whole other wavelength that doesn't even make sense. Couples that have been around each other, though, they think the same. An elderly couple was, was beginning to forget little things around the house. And so they went to the doctor because they were concerned that, you know, maybe this forgetfulness might one day be that they leave the stove or oven on and start a fire. And so they decided to see their doctor to kind of get some help. And their doctor told them that many people their age find it useful to write themselves little notes as reminders. Well, the couple thought this was a wonderful idea and, and left the doctor's office very pleased with the, with the advice. And when they got home, the, the wife said, Dear, would you, would you please go to the kitchen and get me a dish of ice cream? And why don't you write that down so you won't forget? Least nonsense, said the husband. I can remember a dish of ice cream. Well, said the wife, Actually, I'd like some strawberries on it, if you, if you would. Uh, you better write that, that down, though, because I know you'll forget. Don't be silly, replied the husband. I can remember. I, my memory's not that bad. I, I can remember ice cream with strawberries. Okay, dear, she said, uh, but I'd like you to put some whipped cream on top. Now, you better really write that down. He says, come on now. My, how bad do you think my memory is? And so... He says, no problem, dish of ice cream, strawberries on top, whipped cream on top of that. And so he went into the kitchen, closed the door, and was gone for 15 minutes. 15 minutes later, he walks out, and he's got a plate of bacon and eggs to put in front of her. The wife looks, takes one look at the plate, glances at the husband, and says, I knew you wouldn't get it right. Where is my toast? Now, having, having that kind of connection... With someone, just, it just doesn't happen. They, like, there's a transition that happens, at least it should early in marriage. It, this transition is where we move from all about me to all about we. And that's not an easy transition. It, in fact, it may be harder today than at any other time in history because this world is customized to me. Like, think about your day. Like when I wake up in the morning, one of the first things I do is I make coffee. But I don't make a cup. I don't brew coffee for everyone. We have a Keurig. I pick one pod, the pod that I like, the strength of coffee I like, and I put it in and I pour up one cup for me. And then I shower with my shampoo and with my, with my body wash and its manly smell. It, there's no pomegranates or citrus in any of it. And... And then I drive my car and I, put, and I set it to my playlist of music or, or I listen to my podcast and it's customized for me. When I get home, I, I watch Netflix and there's a little icon with my name on it and, it, and Netflix picks uh, shows that are, that are suited to me based on what I like and not for anyone else, but just, just for me. And, and then I, I lay my head down on my pillow and I have a water pillow and I filled that pillow to the exact amount of water that is perfect for my head position because it's for it's for me it's all about me and so we see this in in numerous parts of our lives we see this in relationships we see this in marriage we even see it sometimes in our worldview and our politics is this me over we and if you want the type of closeness in any of your relationships, as long as you make life about me, you will never have that kind of intimacy. The only way to go from all about me to all about we is to stop being about me. 
We're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 10 and what Jesus says on this topic of marriage. Over and over, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they, they would try to trap Jesus. And so to discredit him uh, and, and turn the people against him, they, verse 2, it says, they ask him, they try to trap him with this question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? They want, to, they want to trap Jesus into saying something that just kind of like turns people against him. And so this whole idea of divorce was something that they, were, they, they, had, they had debated quite a while. There was differing interpretations that surrounded it. And for some, they believed that when Moses gave this, this law, that it meant that divorce was the exception. Like there's very, very rare occasions where this actually took place. And, but many in the culture of, of Jesus had taken this, this verse as permission to divorce your wife if she even looked at you the wrong way, you, you, you didn't even have to give a reason. If you were not happy with her for whatever reason, you could divorce her. And so the Pharisees are provoking Jesus to pick a side. And so Jesus responds to this question in typical Jesus fashion. He responds to the question with a question. And he answered them, what did, what did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. And so they want to make this a black and white issue. And Jesus knows there's so much more to it. There's so much more beneath the surface. And so he's not going to take their bait. And he's not going to pick a side. He's going to, he chooses to dig deeper and look at the spirit behind the law. And he chooses to look at what God says about it. And in verse 5 it says, But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. He's like, you're wanting to make this a debate. Who's right? But... But Moses wrote this law because your hearts were hard. This isn't what God had in mind from the beginning. But Moses wrote this because your hearts had gone hard. And some of you understand this. Because when you began this marriage, you had strong intentions. And your heart was soft, but over the years, your, your heart has become hard. And, and maybe you're, you're watching this today and you, you're sitting next to your spouse and even though you're sitting close to them, you feel so separate. You feel so distant. And, you, and maybe you don't even want to be listening to this. Hopefully you're not going to turn this off. But this idea of a marriage series for you possibly might not even be that appealing because you think there's no use. It's like what my marriage is right now is, is not what I signed up for. And your heart has become hard. And so Jesus points them back to where marriage originated. He says in verse 6, But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split what God has joined together. And so Jesus points out that this marriage is a union between a man and a woman, and these two separate me's become one we, a union. And it's not just two separate, two separate entities that are put together, super glued together, but it's more like taking two liquids and pouring the two liquids together to the point where they mix together that you could not separate them any longer. They are so intermixed with each other. And I think that's the type of marriage that we all go into hoping that we'll have a union like this, that we'll be united with someone that we can be one with and, and have intimacy with. But there, there are things that cause separation. And this separation isn't normally a spontaneous event. It's something where we drift to. And that drifting sometimes takes place over years, over, 
over decades. But Mark 10, 9 says, let no one split apart what God has joined together. See, when you were married, whether you recognize it or not, you brought baggage with you, your issues into the marriage. And you brought, you brought baggage that you are now, as you unpack it, is building a wall, a barrier in your marriage. And you knew what you were bringing into the marriage, or at least you thought you did. But you had no idea everything that was in her bags that she brought, or his bags that he brought into the marriage. And while we didn't mean for this to happen, at some point we started pulling things out of those bags and, and this, this wall, this barrier began to build. A barrier that separates husbands and wives. So what are some of the things that help build this, this wall or this barrier? Well, number one is unrealistic expectations. And I don't think we know that we have these at first, to be honest. I think we accumulate them over time. And we, we grow up and we watch movies and we watch fairy tales of what romance should look like. And, and we, we, we read or we watch knights in shining armors and princesses and happily ever afters. And so you begin dating and this, this all seems like it's coming true. Like he truly is Prince Charming. He smells great and he's clean shaven and his manners are impeccable. And, 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 and you didn't even notice, but when you're over at his house and, and his parents are looking at each other because they don't even recognize this polite young man. I mean, normally around the house, all he does is grunt answers. And yet now he's so well-spoken and, so, and, he's, and he's delightful to be around. And, and the dates that you go on are out of movies and she laughs at all your jokes and your jokes aren't even that funny. And you get married and, and you're on your honeymoon. And, and in that moment on your honeymoon, there's, there's a time where you think, I don't think there's anybody, there's a couple who's ever been more in love than in the history of the world than we are right now. But then you fast forward six months, maybe a year, and start, suddenly you start to see the foundations of the wall, the barrier. He suddenly doesn't smell that good. And he, and he doesn't even seem to care, actually. And, and you don't remember when you were dating him eating as loud as he eats now. And she used to walk into the room and you couldn't take your eyes off of her. But now she walks into the room and she's wearing a nightgown where it looks like she just walked off the set of, of Little House on the Prairie. And, and she used to shave her legs on a regular basis, but now she's in hibernation mode until the spring. And, and so... She becomes annoyed at his socks on the floor, and he's annoyed that the car has been left on empty in the driveway again. And you combine that with money issues and, and job issues and kids, and, and they're at each other's throats. And this wasn't in the brochure. This isn't in the movies. And I had expectations, and they're not living up to this. And so these, un, these unrealistic expectations, they begin to build a wall. That it, and it's not going to be easy. You're not always going to feel the way that you did when you dated. I was doing marriage counseling uh, a few months ago. And I asked the question at one point, you know, how do you know that, how, when did you know that he was the one? And she said to me, I knew he was the one because when he walked into the room, I got butterflies. Okay. 
Completely unrelated note, but did you know that monarch butterflies only last, uh, only survive about two to four weeks? That the, the, the longest living butterfly species um, dies after nine months to a year? Just saying, just saying. I mean, feelings are going to come and go, but if you're, and if you're married, you know this. You know this. Some days you look at, you look at him and you think, I can't believe that I'm so lucky. I, I mean, look at him. I just want to squeeze him. I, I, I can't get close enough to him. And then the very, but the very next day, you wake up and he's like hogging your side of the bed and you're like, move, get your leg off me. Stop touching me. When's the last time you cut your toenails? See, unrealistic expectations will say that marriage is easy and it will always be easy. You will always feel butterflies and everything will be smooth. Another item that becomes a barrier is unsolvable problems. See, we tend to think that if we're with the right person, there's nothing we can't solve. And if we can't solve an issue, well, maybe you're not the right person. But Dr. John Gottman, a psychologist that has studied marriage uh, stability for the last 40 years, concluded that about 70% of issues in marriage are not issues that are dealt with once and never to be dealt with again. They're not reoccur there, there are so many reoccurring issues that just need to be worked out on an ongoing basis. For example, money issues. I mean, generally, you don't have a money issue in your marriage and you deal with some sort of financial, financial crisis and, and then if you fix that, you never deal with money issues ever again in your, in your marriage. You're going to have to deal with them as they come up. Some examples that Dr. Gottman would call unresolvable issues are financial stress, in-law stress, personality difference, difference in libido. And these things just don't change. 70% are things that, that can't be resolved completely. You have to face them as they come up. I mean, some of these, some of these, these this baggage, some of this baggage can be, can be knocked down or tore down uh, with a change from either spouse, but to remove some of the baggage, you're gonna have to work on these issues as they arrive on a continual basis. Another unrealistic expectation in a relationship is when you are owed something, where you believe it's your spouse's job to make you happy. And so we put that pressure on them. The problem is, is that when you believe somebody owes you something, you rob them of the opportunity to give you something. Like for example, we just celebrated Valentine's Day this past week. Now ladies, did he give you something because he wanted to give you something? Or did he give you something because he felt like he owed you something? Like, did he, did he give you something because he genuinely wanted to? Or did he feel like, I should, or this is going to be ugly around my house. Like, I owe her this. Because if you owe something, it's no longer giving. For example, you, you won't believe this, but your bank will not send you a thank you card when you make a mortgage payment. No gratitude whatsoever. Because they believe that it's not a gift. You owe it. It's a debt. So this pressure of expectation, it will crush intimacy. Another, another bag in this barrier is underestimated differences. There's often a theme in couples that opposites attract. And, and, and many times you are opposite in many different ways. For example, 
most likely one of you is a planner and the other of you is more spontaneous. One of you is a morning person while the other person likes to sleep in. Uh, often one of you is very money conscious. I mean, they call you cheap. But you like to think of it as financially responsible. Well, meanwhile, the other person, not so much. One of you is generally outgoing. The other of you is quite reserved. Many times, who you are is, comes from how you were raised or um, how you were wired, your, your gene pool that you came from. And like, for example, my dad is, my dad's handy. Um, I'm not, I, I didn't get that gene. Uh, Jen's dad is handy. Again, I'm not. Uh, Jen's dad built a cottage, like, like a big cottage out of, out of like the wood around him, like trees, like actual trees. Meanwhile, I changed the uh, faucet on our sink, and when I'm done, like I emerge from that kitchen like a wrestler entering the ring, like theme music and all, like I am proud. So, so, but sometimes your spouse's weakness can cause tension. Like you married her because she wasn't like you, and you felt like in the moment she brought balance to you, like she offset some of your strengths and weaknesses. But now you argue because she's not like you. She doesn't do things like you do, and it is a, it's a point of frustration. And so there's this tension about your weaknesses. Before marriage, you didn't even know you had weaknesses or shortcomings because you were, it was all about me, right? Like, you didn't know you were messy. You just thought you had a different organization system. You didn't know you were cheap. You just thought, you know, I'm way more responsible with my finances than anyone else that I know. See, when I'm the only one that cares about me or is responsible for me, I have blind spots. But once, once I got married, I discovered I'm a bit more prideful than I thought I was. I'm a little more selfish. I'm a little more undependable. I'm more sinful than I realized I was. And, and this isn't because my wife pointed these things out to them. I actually discovered them in the mirror. See, marriage has this way of showing you, you. And, and when we don't like the things that we see in the mirror, it's a lot easier to deflect and say it's not a problem. It's our spouse's problem. It is their problem. It's their issue, not mine. And, you know, I, I, it's not my issue that I'm messy. It's your issue for caring that there's socks or my underwear's on the floor. Another part of the the. the Another part of this, this barrier that we put up is unmet needs. Like in a marriage, there are needs on both sides, right? Like, but the problem is, as soon as that I bring up this statement, does, does your mind directly jump to your unmet needs or your spouse's unmet needs? That's sort of the test. Because Philippians 2 says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. See, if you put the needs of your spouse first, there's a better chance that he or she will take their focus off their own needs and worry about yours as well. It's funny how that works. Another one of these barriers, or the, the, the baggage in our barrier wall, is unresolved anger. Hebrews 12 talks about when anger takes root. It spreads like an infection. And this is the picture of maybe what's happening in, in your marriage. 
You're married to someone who is, who's angry. It seems like they're angry all the time. And it spreads to other areas of your, your marriage. And, and as a result, you're kind of angry. I mean, maybe you're married to someone, and it, it didn't always used to be like this, but they always use harsh tones and it's, or snappy answers. And it's, it's not even over something big. It's like, can you pass the salt? Yeah, I can pass the salt. And it's, it's hard to feel close to someone who is, who's like that. When I was in Guatemala, we hiked up a, a volcano, and the volcano began to actually show signs of eruption. And I noticed that the guides that were leading us up there, they got nervous. Their eyes got a little wider, and they got a little more uh, animated, and they began to plan an exit strategy for our team. And the reason was is they were around the last time that this volcano erupted years and years and years ago, and it wasn't pretty. You could actually still see the, the path of destruction that it left. And so naturally, your human nature isn't to get closer to an erupting volcano. It's to get as far away as possible. So when someone was always on edge or ready to blow at any given moment, you know, I need to stay clear. I need to keep my distance. I need to find a safe place. Another part of the, this, this barrier in our marriages is unsafe environments. And I think it's important that we talk about this because... I think we all, especially in a church, feel like we have an idea of how different people's marriages are. Like, because we see what we see, but, and we think there's no way that there's any issues or, or spousal abuse happening in our church. But behind closed doors, things can often be different. And no one knows. No one's any the wiser. And so ladies, let me, let me speak to you for a moment. Maybe you're married to a, your husband and he vowed to be your protector. And now time has gone on and the person that you need protecting from is him. And so maybe you both go to church and you put on a good show, but when you get home, you're afraid. And where there is abuse, there's no room for love or intimacy. And he might even take a sermon like this he might pull little parts where he's like, you need to meet my needs. And he'd justify his abuse. But first let me say this. It's not your fault. You do not deserve it. There is no excuse for it. And it's not your job as a Christian wife to fix your husband and get from being abusive. And let me tell you this. He will answer to God. And husbands, if this is you, you need to get down on your face and you need to repent. And you need to get some help. God did not put her in your life to abuse. And wives, if you find yourself in this situation, you need to understand this. There is no justification for this. And he may twist it and make you believe it's your fault, but he's a liar. And he has broken his marriage vows. And God will deal with him. But you need to get help. And there are a number of people in this church, there are a number of people, myself included, that will help you. You just need to call the church and we will help you. And maybe you're hearing me now and you feel like you're alone, but let me assure you you are not alone. We will help you. The next, the next barrier that we need to talk about is constant criticism. 
Proverbs 17, 9 says, Love prospers when fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. See, love, love prospers when fault is forgiven. But maybe you're in a marriage where you've been told you're forgiven, but your wrongdoings just keep finding their way to the surface again. Like, she gets up and says, do you know what day it is? And you're like, um, February 18th? That's right. You know what February 18th is? No. It's the 12-year anniversary from the date that you forgot to put the garbage out. It's like you're constantly apologizing for something that you were told you were forgiven and, and it was forgotten. And Proverbs says it separates even the closest friends. Proverbs 27, 15, 16 says, A nagging spouse is like the drip, drip, drip of a leaky faucet. You can't turn it off and you can't get away from it. But you want to. And it's really hard to be close to someone who is constantly criticizing you. Here's the last one. The last one in your barrier of marriage is secret sin. Like there's something you're not telling her. Or you're, there's something you aren't telling him. And you think as long as they don't find out that you can keep your ma happy marriage going, but you feel there's a disconnect. And you can't quite put your finger on it. And you think these things aren't connected. This secrecy is not connected, but they are. And you're building a barrier that only repentance and confession can break down. And so, there's a couple things I'm going to ask you to do this week. Number one, I want you to identify the areas that you're adding to the wall. The areas in your life that you're adding to this barrier in your marriage. No. It's important to understand what I didn't say. I didn't say identify the, the parts of your spouse's life that they're adding to the barrier. Because that's really easy. And maybe while I've been speaking, you've been thinking about all their baggage that they're bringing into this marriage. But I want you to focus on what's your responsibility. Number two, this is the last, last thing is this. For seven days, one week, I want, you to challenge, I want to challenge you to pray together out loud with your spouse every day. And maybe you already do this, which is great. But statistically speaking, 8% of Christian couples do this. So like in our church setting, that makes the odds probably one, one couple in this church is doing that. But according to the same research, this is, get this, the divorce rate between couples that pray together every day is 1 in 10,000. There's perhaps nothing more effective at tearing down marriage barriers than taking a few minutes together. And praying. And it's not going to cost you anything. And I get it. Some of you don't like the idea. You're probably a guy too. And it's not because you think it's a bad thing. and you, you recognize this is a good thing. But it's kind of awkward. It's kind of awkward. But the truth is real intimacy. Usually means you're going to be put into a vulnerable position. And the rewards are huge. So I'm asking you to try it. See what it does. Pray for one another every day together out loud for one week.